Hello, and welcome to GEMcast. My name is Christina Shenby, and GEMcast is devoted to helping improve the care of older adults in the emergency department. Today, I am joined by a very special guest. You really cannot look very far in the world of geriatric emergency medicine without coming across his name in a ton of different publications. He's the current president of the Academy of Geriatric Emergency Medicine through SAEM, and he helped define the geriatric emergency medicine guidelines for care for geriatric emergency departments or senior EDs. He has also published and researched on many different topics, including falls and falls assessments and delirium. And he was one of the people who helped promote the formation of GEMcast. So I'm very excited to have on the show Chris Carpenter from Washington University in St. Louis. And we're going to be talking about five high-thought, low-tech, or high-yield, relatively easy ways to improve care for older adults in pretty much any ED, or five ways to geriatricize any ED or make it more geriatric-friendly. As you may know, geriatric or senior EDs have been popping up around the country. The idea behind them is that having a separate space with a distinct staff and specialized protocols can help provide better care to older adults. However, for many EDs or hospital systems, that is simply not feasible. So I wanted to know what are the ways that those of us working in general EDs or community academic EDs can take some of the principles from the geriatric ED guidelines and apply them to either our own practice or implement them in our own EDs in ways that will help older adults but won't require hundreds of thousands of dollars. So even if you can't build your specialized building and hire a whole new staff who are specialized in geriatric ED care, here are a few ways that you can improve the care of older adults in your ED. Chris, thank you so much for being on GEMcast. Oh, my pleasure, Christina. Thanks for the opportunity. Let's just jump in and start with number one. Sure. I think it's really important that these recommendations be both feasible and really high thought and low tech because you don't really know what kind of resources the individual ED is going to have. So the simplest, the first resource that I would put forth is the geriatric guidelines that we put out a couple of years ago that were endorsed by the American College of Emergency Physicians, the American Geriatric Society, the Emergency Nurses Association, and SAM have since been prioritized by the Canadians and the Europeans as well. So just being aware that those guidelines exist and accepting that there is a need for a separate model of care for older adults. So our first quick obvious take-home is that there are already a bunch of guidelines. How many, was it 30 or something different things that you guys put in there? Yeah, we, we went through the literature and we went through the uh, educational priorities that we had put together in 2010, the research priorities that we had put together in, at the NIH in 2011, and then we whittled those down to about 42 different recommendations, each tied to an actionable statement, something that you can do in your ED to improve the care for an older adult. A couple of those awesome. we're going to talk about today. Right. So today we'll kind of talk about some top five things that, that people can take home. But if you, as a listener, want more information, there's 42 guidelines that they have put out for improving the care of older adults in a geriatric EM model. And I will put the link to those in the show notes. Excellent. So that's our first take-home point. Number two? Number two is that you have to have a functional assessment of the patient. You've got to know that this patient who you've got in front of you, what is their baseline functional status? And importantly, if you're going to send them home, what's their ability to recover their independence based upon what you see in front of you? Can they get daily nutrition? Can they do their daily hygiene? Can we make sure that when we send them home, they're not going to have a fall? And that's really important because, as you've talked about on your show before, falls are the number one cause of traumatic mortality in the older adult. And unfortunately, in 2016, 
the evidence we have on how to screen older adults for future fall risk is really very limited. I think in your blog, you're going to put a table in there with one of the instruments that's probably the best validated so far. A lot of work to be done still, though. So I think this is a really important point because we frequently see older patients who come in and they've had a fall and you maybe scan their head or x-ray their wrist and maybe they don't have any injuries, but you know that they've had multiple falls in the past and are likely to have falls again in the future and you kind of feel a little bit helpless as to what you can do to help prevent those falls. Do you want to walk us quickly through kind of what you would do with that kind of patient in the ED? Sure. Uh, the first thing I do, what I try to encapsulate in my mind, is why did this patient fall? And that's sometimes simple to understand. Sometimes it's not. Um, in your blog, you're going to put a figure, I believe, that we had published a couple of years ago that talks about the, the patient right before they fall and what are the intrinsic, the, the things inherent to that patient's physiology and their body, their medications, their unique disease processes that predispose them to falls. And then the uh, second image talks about the, the mid-fall stage, when they're in the process of falling, what makes it more likely that they can't stop that fall, that they're going to injure themselves based upon their delayed reflexes, based upon inability to see objects around them, based around, uh, upon their uh, house environment, what's, what are they going to hit? What stairs are they going to fall down? And, so, and, and then the last image is when they fall into the ground, what are the geriatric physiology attributes that make them more prone to not be able to get up? to suffer secondary injury when they're laying on the ground. And, and thinking about that physiology of the fall, why they fall, and, and what can I do to prevent future falls based upon those unique fall risk factors, that's the first thing that I do. When I have the patient in front of me is try and put this picture that's going to be on your blog into my mind and walk through the individual patient's fall in front of me, what happened, and how can I prevent it in the future. The second thing that I do is think about predicting future falls and that's where I get into a bit of the evidence-based medicine. We had done a systematic review and meta-analysis a couple of years ago looking at independent risk factors for falls from history, from physical exam, and from things like functional tests like the get-up-and-go test. Uh, and, and unfortunately, some of those objective markers that we teach, like watching the patient walk and doing the tandem gait walk and the chair stand, didn't really predict future falls very well for that ED population. The one thing that did show some promise at identifying a lower risk population was this instrument that we developed in Pittsburgh, and it has four components that are pretty easy to remember. The presence of a non-healing foot sore, any fall in the last 12 months, inability to cut your own toenails, that's the patient, not you, <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, self-reported depression. So any yes response indicates a higher risk patient for future falls. And all no responses, that's a lower risk patient that you probably can be less concerned about future falls in the next six months. Interesting. I think I did meet some of those criteria while I was pregnant. But one other issue is, say you've identified a high-risk patient. They have had a fall. They have a sore on their feet. They uh, can't cut their toenails, et cetera, et cetera. You also have to have some sort of thing that you can do with that information. And that is going to vary by location. I know some sites have a false clinic or a false follow-up clinic to which they can refer high-risk patients and they will do a more comprehensive falls and gait assessment or maybe a home visit to evaluate any risks around the home or a med reconciliation to see if there are medications that are contributing to their falls. Do you have anything like that or have you seen things like that that have worked well in other sites? I agree. You have to have something that not only you have access to, but you have a belief it actually benefits the patient. And unfortunately, right. just like the screening instruments, the evidence basis for interventions to prevent future falls, very limited, uh, in, particularly in the ED setting, but I would say in general. So some of the things that the Cochrane Review on Fall Prevention in, in Community Dwelling Older Adults says works, 
is uh, something like Tai Chi. So this uh, huh. Asian stretching exercise. I, I don't have a Tai Chi clinic in my ED, nor, nor, <laughs> nor do I have a protocol to get patients to a Tai Chi clinic, nor can I really be assured that my urban older adults are going to have the money to pay for Tai Chi at, at say, the YMCA. So that, that's a real problem is lack of access. I do think that there are some programs around the country that are putting together post-ED falls clinic. We don't have one at my institution, but one of our community hospital partners is putting one together. I think that's probably the way for the future. And that would mean that the emergency docs have to sit together with the physiotherapist, with the geriatricians, with the primary care providers, and figure out how can we get these patients into these fall clinics and not just reflexively admit them to the hospital, admit them to ops, or even worse, send them home with nothing. So I, I do think that's the way for the future. We've got a ways to go, though. Right. I agree. I think we're at the stage where we can sense when there's a problem, but then we don't have a great system to really intervene and fix it. And Hopefully, I look forward to seeing what's done in the future on this, and maybe some sort of combination of home visits, Tai Chi, et cetera, is going to work for people, but it's a huge problem right now. Let's move on to number three. Number three is the cognitive assessment, and that's this constellation of dementia and mild cognitive impairment and delirium, which are distinct but closely related. And unfortunately, uh, anywhere from 30 to 40% of our older adults, that is over the age of 65, who come through our ED and live in the community, so this isn't nursing home patients, but 30 to 40% of those will have cognitive impairment if you formally test them. Unfortunately, a study we had done a couple years ago here in St. Louis showed that over 90% of physicians and nurses do not routinely screen for cognitive impairment. And I don't think that that's anything unique to St. Louis. I think that's a national mm -hmm. phenomenon. I think Tess Hogan's uh, snowball sampling of self-defined geriatric EDs bears that out, that we're really not screening for dementia or delirium in most places. Delirium, um, on the other hand, if we screen for that, we know that about 10% of patients over the age of 65 will have delirium. And then 90% of those cases are passing through our EDs undetected. And if we don't detect it in the ED, surprise, surprise, up on the floor, they usually miss it as well. And so uh, I, I think it's really important that we have uh, some way to measure cognitive assessment of patients in the ED. Unfortunately, through the guidelines, we've developed some very practical ways to do that that doesn't require special paper or equipment, doesn't require the patient to have a paper or pencil in front of them when they're laying flat on the gurney with an IV in their arm, doesn't require them to have their glasses with them. It's simple questions that you can ask. So we have put those together in the guidelines. You, you want me to talk about the screening instruments? Yeah, so what would you do to screen for dementia? For dementia, what I would recommend, the simplest instrument is this thing called the Ottawa 3DY. It consists of four questions. What day is today? What is the date? Spell world backwards. And then what year is this? And any single incorrect response is abnormal on the Ottawa 3DY, and that means that the patient's higher risk for having dementia. On the other hand, delirium. What we recommend in the guidelines is this thing called the delirium triage screen, which can be done by a triage nurse out front, by a research assistant, even by a, a medical student or a volunteer if you train them appropriately. Um, and all these things have been tested, all these ways of screening the patient. And that instrument can be followed up with the uh, brief confusion assessment method. Both in conjunction can be done in about a minute to a minute and a half mm -hmm. and, and have high sensitivity and high specificity in combination to detect delirium. Do you want to walk us through the delirium triage screen and the BCAM? Delirium triage screen consists of something called the Richmond Agitation Scale, which is just assess their level of consciousness. Just look at them. Are they awake, alert, looking around the room? In which case, their Richmond Agitation Scale, sedation scale is zero. And anything beyond that, if they're extra sleepy, 
then that gets into the negative category. If they're agitated, uh, confused, disoriented, that gets into the positive positive category. And this score can range from uh, negative uh, four, I believe, up to positive four. But all you care about is it anything other than zero. That's an altered mm-hmm. level of consciousness. If the answer to that is no, then you go to the next step of the uh, delirium triage screen. Can you spell the word lunch backwards? If they have zero or one error, then delirium is not there. If they have greater than one error, then that's a positive delirium triage screen, and you need to go on to the BCAM if you want to be confident that they have delirium. Um, so then the BCAM, um, which again, usually it's done more on the physician level, but there's nothing so complex that it can't be done by nurses either. And, and that consists of the, the first two steps you already went through, the RAS, looking at the level of consciousness, and then inattention. And you can have them either spell lunch backwards or name the months of the year backwards from December to January. Number three is, again, the, the altered level of consciousness with the RAS. And feature four is disorganized thinking. And that's questions like, will the stone float on water? Are there fish in the sea? Does one pound weigh more than two pounds? Or can you use a hammer to pound a nail? And if they answer inappropriately to those questions and meet any of the first two criteria or criteria three or criteria four, that's delirium. And I know you guys had uh, already discussed this, Kevin Bice, with uh, you, you on the first issue of um, GEMcast. So there's a lot more information about delirium screening on previous issues, I know. Right. And I know when Kevin Bice and I talked about it, we had mentioned how undiagnosed delirium can cause a lot of problems. And delirium itself, regardless of whatever else is going on medically, is a predictor of future mortality. What about the dementia portion? Why is it important that we know whether or not that patient has dementia in the ED? I think there's a couple reasons. Number one is you never know when you've got the patient in front of you today whether this confusion that you see is baseline, if it's a deterioration from what they've had before. If it's baseline, if it's a chronic condition, that's probably dementia. And if you don't have somebody from the family to tell you that it's dementia, if you don't have a previous formal dementia screen in a previous ED visit, saying patient was abnormal on the Ottawa 3DY, high risk for dementia. If you don't have an established diagnosis of dementia, which again, 85% of patients who have dementia, if you formally test them, will not report a past medical history of dementia in the ED. We've got good research showing that. Mm. So if you don't have that, you're, you're going to miss it. You're going to think this is delirium or this is grandpa always acting this way. You're going to discount what you see in front of you. And, and secondly, just to get to the daily ED operations, if you don't recognize that they've got dementia, you're probably not going to dig harder for ancillary sources of information. And the patient may come in with three days of chest pain if you ask the family. But if you ask the patient with dementia, he's like, yeah, my big toe hurts. You know, I stubbed it last week gardening. My, my toe is killing me. I'm like, well, it doesn't look like gout. It's not infected. You can go home. Then family comes in and says, no, no, grandpa said he's having chest pain for three days. He didn't tell you that? No, he didn't tell me. And I didn't think to ask anybody else because he seemed normal. So you need to recognize that they're not cognitively there to get a secondary source of information and make sure you get to the root of today's ED visit. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And older patients, if they have dementia, they can be very good at, in some sense, hiding it in that they will interact with you and be very personable and carry on a conversation and seem very confident in what they're telling you when actually they don't necessarily recall what's been going on or if they've had fevers or things like that. So that is a great point. So our implementable or take-home point for this would be that in any ED, any provider, any nurse can start using tools like the delirium triage score, the BCAM for delirium, and then the Ottawa 3DY takes less than 30 seconds to detect whether a patient is at higher risk for dementia. And document that. Make sure you document it for the next provider downstream. 
Exactly. That can be helpful then if the patient comes back the next day and now is very different, then that would be really helpful to have known that, oh, the day before or last week they were normal or they scored normally on this scoring system, et cetera. And we've got a host of instruments that we've validated in ED settings on patients of various health literacy, various ethnicities. So the Auto3DY put forth is the simplest instrument, but there is a host of other instruments that do work in the ED, and some of them work better on different populations. For example, one that we developed here at WashU is called the AD8, the Alzheimer's Dementia 8. It's eight questions that you don't ask the patient. You ask their caregiver or family member who sees them at least a couple times a week. And that tool is really good for highly educated individuals because the highly educated individuals fool these other tests like the Ottawa 3DY, mm. like the short blessed test, but the AD8 is not fooled because family recognizes a change from baseline. So just Interesting. be aware there's lots of instruments out there. Great. All right, let's move on to number four, polypharmacy. You have talked on GEMCAST November 2015, December 2015, January 2016, February <laughs> 2016, and March 2016 on a lot of these issues of adverse drug reactions in older adults. So I don't know that we need to spend a whole lot of time on this, but be aware that the reason that Christina has talked about this over and over again, the reason that we put polypharmacy as a recognizable issue for geriatric emergency medicine residents in training, that is all emergency medicine residents, need to have this core competency of being able to identify ill-advised medications in older adults. And the reason that we put it into the guidelines is because there is a very high-risk, low-benefit list of medications called the BEERS criteria. Be aware of those. Again, pull up the guidelines and look, we've got the BEERS criteria right in the guidelines so you, you can go through the medication list, look at NSAIDs, look at codeine and anticholinergics and benzos. Try to avoid those in general. And the new BEERS criteria that just came out this year in 2016 also starts to list some alternatives, which we've been thinking about for a long time. Yeah, it's all right to say don't use this medication because it increases fall risk, increases the risk of delirium, increases constipation in the older adult. But give me some alternatives and some realistic alternatives, not something that we've not had access to since the 1950s, right? <laughs> so they're, they're, that new, the new beers list is taking a big step forward. The general advice I would give, the one uh, low-tech, low high-thought advice, is start low on whatever medication you're going to start and go slow and check it with the beers list to make sure it's not on that list. My one criticism of the beers list, what we've talked about at AGEM for years, is that the beers list was really constructed for the primary care provider who's prescribing long-term medications, right? Mm -hmm. And the ED is a very short-term environment. I never prescribe anything for more than 30 days, and mostly I prescribe things for three days. So nobody's really tested the beers criteria for short-term medication use, and I think that needs to be done fairly soon if we're going to keep advocating the beers list. It really needs to be tested on the short-term ED prescribing that we do. Right. I think that's key because a lot of things on there, you know, NSAIDs, obviously I've talked about before on GEMCAST, can be dangerous, but maybe one dose when they're having acute pain is not going to cause necessarily a problem. I do still see a lot of older adults who are coming in with possibly agitated delirium or psychosis being treated with the same dose of antipsychotic medications or benzodiazepines as younger patients. And that's an easy thing to stop doing. An older adult should pretty much never be given a quote B52, which is the five of Haldol, two of Ativan and 50 of Benadryl, because that's just an enormous dose in addition to the anticholinergic effect of the Benadryl. So moving to smaller doses, and like you said, start at a low dose and then slowly titrate up if needed. 
Yeah, the most common adverse drug reactions in the older adult that I personally recognize, I, I may see others and not recognize them, but the ones I do recognize are a super therapeutic INR on a patient mm-hmm. who just got started on an antibiotic for some indication. Yep. That, that's the most common thing I see. And the second most common is hypoglycemia in this patient on oral hypoglycemics or, or insulin, but mostly oral hypo, hypoglycemics, who the physician is trying to adhere to these guideline recommendations for tight glucose control in hemoglobin A1Cs in the, in the octogenarian that probably don't have the same benefit that you in the 20 or 30 year old diabetic. Right. And then anything that changes their renal function could affect their, you know, especially on insulin could make their insulin last longer and then their blood sugar drop. And so that's another high risk one. Well, finally, let's move on to transitions of care. Yeah, I think that in order to recognize the uniqueness of taking care of older adults in the ED, we, we have to start to recognize the emergency department where we so frequently operate as if we're alone, because often we are in the middle of the night, on holidays, on weekends. But geriatric care cannot occur uh, as an island. It's part of a continuum. And there's multiple care providers for older people, from the physical therapists and the occupational therapists to social workers to the primary care physicians to the inpatient providers, the hospitalists for those patients who need to admit. And there's lots of community care organizations like the Alzheimer's Association they have great resources for patients, but we don't have the time or the mindset to think about those ahead of time. We, we start to scramble and think about it when we've got a challenging patient in front of us. The a key to effective transitions of care for the older adult is to think about the common scenarios ahead of time and start to establish some of those pipelines of transition ahead of time with your nursing home for the nursing home population with agencies like the Alzheimer's Association ahead of time. And if you have somebody on your faculty who's really interested in the older adult, this would be a good job for them to start to develop these protocols, put them into your electronic medical records, your ED operations, and then make it available when you see a patient real time, that that dementia patient who gets sundowning, who you reflexively might want to admit, but that might be the worst thing for them because there's also harms of admission. And if that's your only reason to bring them in the hospital, maybe the Alzheimer's Association has next day resources that can help keep that patient out of the hospital and give mm-hmm. the caregiver some support as well. Those really exist across the country. I've seen it in rural hospitals, in non-academic urban hospitals. These resources exist, but what you need to do is have some capacity to bring the, the teams together, all these stakeholders, and plan out these protocols ahead of time. So it's not really simple to do, but it is certainly feasible at any healthcare setting. Right. And I think, like you said, this is not rocket science. We know we're going to have patients who need to have follow-up with their primary care physician, need to have PT or OT, or need to have some sort of home visit. And yet a lot of times we find ourselves each shift, each provider trying to find solutions and workarounds for these problems when, as you said, a little bit of planning ahead of time and setting up systems in place would make it a lot easier for the providers and obviously beneficial for the patients. Yeah, and not have to reinvent the wheel, scramble at the last minute. I would give people one resource that's really gives some good lessons on how to do this. JerryEM.com by our friend Don Milady in Toronto has uh, several modules with free CME. So anybody that wants to go there, you can get free CME for a lot of the things that we've talked about with trauma and falls, with polypharmacy. There's also one on transitions of care. And the cool thing about it is he gives this transitions of care from multiple perspectives from the perspective of the patient, from the perspective of the Mm -hmm. provider, and from the perspective of the um, social worker. So you can kind of get a sense for what challenges and barriers and opportunities this transdisciplinary care can offer for the older adult. That's great. So I'm going to summarize the five points that you've made, and then we'll talk about some future directions and challenges. So first of all, we talked about the fact that there are already published and easily accessible guidelines for geriatric emergency care. 
And these could be used for a senior-specific or geriatric-specific ED, but also in any ED. As we've talked about, many of these concepts and systems can be implemented to either your own practice or to your healthcare system to improve the care of older adults. That was number one. Number two is consider doing a functional assessment. We talked specifically about falls, looking at the cause of the falls, intrinsic and extrinsic, the consequence of the falls, trying to make a safe discharge assessment, and then thinking about ways to prevent future falls, which is still an area of active research but at the very least trying to help coordinate care for a patient to get further falls assessment or PT at maybe Tai Chi, et cetera. Third, we talked about doing cognitive assessments specifically for delirium using the triage delirium tool and the BCAM, and then for dementia using the Ottawa 3DY or several of the other tools that Chris mentioned. And this can help you, first of all, know how reliable the patient's history will be, as well as document what their status is on that day in case they change on future visits, and also help set them up for if they are admitted, the inpatient team will be aware, oh, this patient is delirious and will have that on their radar. Fourth, we talked about polypharmacy, which first take home is review the beers list and just be aware that a lot of these medications that we use on a regular basis may be high risk in older patients, particularly if you're prescribing a longer course. And then also, as we've mentioned previously on GEMCAST, starting at a low dose and titrating up slowly is a good general principle. And then number five, transitions of care. This is particularly important for older adults, although really any patient can benefit. Having a system where if the PCP sees the patient in clinic and sends them to you in the ED, is there a way that the information gets transmitted to you so that you know why they're there? And vice versa, if you discharge a patient, is there a way that their primary care physician learns about the fact that they were in the ED and whether you started or changed any medications, et cetera, et cetera? That's a quick summary of what we talked about. Chris, where do you see some future challenges or major areas of change or research? Well, first of all, that's a tremendous summary. Thank you for summarizing <laughs> um, the, the future challenges, I think, are that us guideline developers for the geriatric ED or the senior-friendly ED, whatever you want to call it, we need to prioritize these guidelines. 42 is better than 400, but 42 is still a lot. So what's the most important one? We're starting to conceptualize how to do that, but we need help from your listeners to tell us what we missed. Eventually, we need to update the guidelines. We need to figure out what we missed, what needs to be refined, what new information in the literature has come out. And then probably the most important and probably the hardest as well is we need to demonstrate that these guidelines improve outcomes, that they have efficacy, effectiveness, that they add to value-based purchasing, and particularly for the C-suites, the people who are going to give you the resources to do some of these things in your ED. We need to give you some ammunition to give that C-suite person that this is worth your time worth your money, worth your personal resources. The last thing is we need to figure out a, a better way to implement these guidelines. You know, the Institute of Medicine, Christina, says that it takes 17 years for 14% of the evidence to get to the bedside for anything, not just geriatrics. And just publishing these guidelines uh, is not enough. We need to figure out a better implementation pathway forward so that we can better care for the older adults that we see today, tomorrow, and for the foreseeable future. Well, Chris, thank you so much for being on GEMcast. I will have a lot of the information and references that we talked about in the show notes, and I'll also tag your Twitter handle so that people can comment or ask you questions or give some feedback. Thank you so much for being on GEMcast, and I look forward to having you again another time. Thank you, Christina. My pleasure. Thank you.